0: guess who's back
1: back again baldy's back tell your friends. ah that was funny all right let's go welcome back to pocket theology where i was just making martin really self-conscious about his hairline uh it's whatever (laughs) i'm sorry martin
0: Today we
1: are talking about the love of God. Uh, Last week we talked about justice, this week we're kind of talking about what we often think of as the other side of the coin, although that maybe isn't the best way to think about it. So we'll be discussing the love of God, how God reveals his love to us today. Let's get into it. Martin, with your beautiful hairline. Please say
0: hello to everyone. Sarcasm hurts more than the truth sometimes.
1: It wasn't sarcasm. It was patronizing. Oh, yes, it was. It was patronizing, but it wasn't sarcastic. It was a lie. Say hi to everyone, Martin. Hi. Hello. That reminded me of that, uh, the Russian wolf dog memes. The let me do it for you. Anyway, I love those memes. Because I also have a sight hound, and sight hounds are great animals. I have two sight hounds, and they're great. So today we're not talking about dogs. We're talking about God, as per usual. Specifically, we we're talking about the love of God. This is a continuation of what we started last week, where we're talking about this project that you did for school. So why don't you just jump in, give us whatever introduction you feel like giving us, and then just start rolling, and we'll see where I can hop in and contribute, or ask questions, or generally irritate you.
0: Yeah, so I have three kind of points with some subpoints, points but um, we're going to talk about how God reveals his love in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 8. Uh, and I want to go ahead and read them again this week so that we can just spend some time sitting on them, letting it fill our hearts. So Exodus 34, 6 through 8 says, And he, Yahweh, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parent to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. We included verse 8 because we believe that what's happening here is Yahweh is revealing himself to Moses for the first time in this kind of depth. This is the first time he gives himself a name. This is the first time that he is really interacting with a person at this length. This is Moses on Mount Sinai, and he's up there for a very long time we believe that the correct response to this to understanding both sides of the coin as jason mentioned god's love and god's justice the correct response is to bow down and worship at how great our god is and so last week we talked about god's justice we talked about how um, we used that fletcher quote a lot which i really liked justice is god's love distributed to all And that really helped us to see justice in light of who Yahweh is. Yahweh is the the ultimate example of justice, but he's also the ultimate example of love. We have to understand the two interact. God doesn't take his love hat off to put his justice hat on. They have to interact with each other. They are not independent of each other. And so last week we talked about justice, and this week we are going to talk about love. So, I have three things I want to do. First, I want to start out and define the terms that Yahweh uses to show his love. And then after that, we're going to talk about um, what God's love does for his people. And I have two examples of that. So, first off, Jason, I'm going to ask you to help me out on some of these. So, the first term that Yahweh uses to describe his love is the compassionate, right? So let me ask you, Jason, how would you define compassion?
1: I think I would define compassion as like someone who, like kind of like sympathy, like they feel for other people, but sympathy is like just a feeling. If you're compassionate, then you don't just feel for someone, you like do stuff. To make things better, like you care enough to act in their favor, it's a good, it's a good Greek definition. You know,
0: uh, I agree. Compassion does require action, and so I want to share a a definition that actually Tim Keller came up with. This is not from me. For those of you that don't know, this clump of verses that we're talking about is one of the most referenced verses in the Old Testament in the rest of Scripture. So this verse is actually used in Jonah chapter four, when Jonah is sarcastically describing Yahweh as the compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithful God, right? When Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal Prophet, he looks at what's used in Jonah chapter four, specifically in verses 10 and 11 of that, which is um, his description of Yahweh that we find in Exodus 34. He says that compassion is a word that means to grieve over someone or something, to have your heart broken and to weep for it. And so, when we look at this definition that Keller gives, let's start off with to have your heart broken. First of all, that means that you have to be vulnerable. Think CS Lewis said this, Jason Will have to correct me if he can. And if he can't, Brandon will text us as soon as this episode comes out. But he describes love. C.S. Lewis does. uh, Describes love as making oneself vulnerable. As opening yourself up to hurt. And that's why love is so hard. Because when you truly care for someone, when you truly love somebody, there is the possibility that you get hurt. Lewis also mentions that the only place that you can truly be without love, without the opportunity for love, is hell, is the ultimate removal of God. And so as we talk about love as a characteristic of God, um, I think it's really interesting to look at it from the aspect of creating vulnerability for yourself. This is what's really crazy. When you look into Scripture, there is absolutely no place that teaches that Yahweh had to create. He could have been just hanging out on his own. He would have been fine if he was in, If he was an introvert, he'd love
1: it. As we, God can't be introverted. That's a podcast he, for another time. But God cannot be introverted. He also can't be extroverted, because if you're talking about like yeah, like how you regenerate energy, then yeah, I guess you're right. But
0: Yahweh did not have to create the world. He did so as an act of love, as an act of opening himself up for hurt, which we did. If you look at the creation narrative, God creates human beings in his own image and he loves them. They were they were, you know, good, and then they broke the image by introducing sin into the world. And that was I think if we were to apply Tim Tim Keller's quote about a broken heart, I think that that would be the first instance of God, God's heart breaking, is when his creation chose not to worship him. And that's that's a really tough way to look at that, first of all. that When you look at your sin as breaking the heart of God, when you look at what Adam and Eve did as the first time that that happens, it i mean i'm tearing up currently just thinking about it and i i don't cry easily
1: i, I almost cry easily and there's and I, a like when we think of someone's heart being broken we think of like the angsty teenager crying about their girlfriend breaking up with them or something like because most of us have been there you know uh, not martin because he's perfect and he only dated one girl his entire life and now he's married to her and they have a kid together but heck yeah. most of us <laughs> most of us have done that um when we're talking about God's like heart being broken, us hurting God, when he created us and gave us the ability to act outside of his will, this is God. He's eternal. He's 100% justice, 100% mercy, 100% love. And he created these beings that broke the things that he created, that shattered his universe. And then for the first time in the history of everything, for the first time in eternity, they chose to act in a way that was not aligned with God's will. Like, that's... I don't know that's a kind of hurt we can, we can understand. Like, it, it would be such a deep level of betrayal. I think beyond even the worst kinds that we can think about. Worse than adultery. Worse than when children disobey their parents... Or reject and estrange themselves from their parents when they grow older. Like, it's such a deep thing. Because it's so, it's so contrary to how everything was designed. It's so contrary to God's very nature. And it, in a very real way, breaks all of creation. Like, that's, that's just a different level.
0: And that's part of what's so crazy about this. Is when we see Yahweh described as... Compassionate. That includes the part that chose to create humans that would eventually disobey him. But this is what's really crazy. Keller included something that I wanted to point out because Jason described compassion as requiring an action. Keller uses the word to grieve over something to start with. And grieving is a process that you have to choose to go through. And I think that's the action involved in this specifically. The grieving process doesn't just happen. You have to choose to go through it. I'm watching a TV show called Shrinking on Apple TV right now. And part of what this show includes, uh, the main character who plays Marshall Erickson in How I Met Your Mother, Uh, the TV show also includes Harrison Ford. So if you want to see Han Solo at 75 years old,
1: you know. Han Solo and Marshall are not the combination I knew I needed in my life, but here we are.
0: They are the combination
1: you need. But this show
0: includes Marshall, whose character's name is Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy's wife died almost a year prior to this in a car accident. And he and his daughter have been... uh, I mean, they've been affected by this, but there's so many other people that have as well, uh, including some of the other characters. But the show starts out with Jimmy choosing to go through the grieving process. And Harrison Ford's character... Uh, explains that Jimmy hasn't begun, he's only begun grieving at this point. And he says, I've been grieving for almost a year. Almost like a, are you kidding me? Like, I've been grieving for so long. And Harrison Ford, whose character's name I can't think of right now, um, says, no, Jimmy, you've been numbing for almost a year. You've only begun the grieving process. And so he had chosen for months to numb pain with Um, in the show. He chooses alcohol, women, drugs. Those are pretty standard choices for a lot of people, but there's a lot of other things that can also numb pain. Work. Uh, There's a lot of people who will dive into their work when they're hurt or when they lose somebody instead of grieving. It could also include, you know, research projects or things that you just elect to do because you don't want yeah. to focus on how you're feeling.
1: Food, um, and so I'd videoing, I'd argue that exercise, yeah. any anything that can potentially make you feel good.
0: Yeah. And so I would argue that grieving is the action in compassion here. Uh, and we see that Yahweh grieves over the lostness of humanity. That's the first word that we're going to define. The next one I think is really interesting. So, Jason, I'm going to ask you again to uh, attempt to give me a definition for this. I don't think you're going to get this
1: one. I know it's a trap, but I'm still going to try.
0: (laughs) So, Jason, how would you define gracious or how Yahweh sees graciousness?
1: Okay, so the cheap cop-out is graciousness is the quality of being able to give grace without using the word grace. So, well, I'll use that definition and I'll define grace if that's okay. So, I would say that grace is the granting I'll, I'll use a really standard like preacher definition. The granting of unmerited favor, giving to someone something they do not deserve and have not earned.
0: Okay. So, this this term for graciousness, found here in Exodus 34, um, this is really interesting. This term is not used to describe anything that humans do in the Old Testament. This is exclusively used as a quality of God. It's an adjective or a describing word. So it's a, a quality of God, which applies to his willingness to hear the cry of someone who is in debt to him. So a good example of this would be the prodigal son when he comes back, right? Uh, For those of you that don't know the story, the prodigal son goes like this. A man has two sons. And one day, the younger son says, give me my inheritance. I'm tired of this place. I want to go do my own thing. So the younger son ends up leaving with his inheritance after dad says, okay, fine. Um, And he goes into the city and he spends all of his money on frivolous living, women, drugs, alcohol, like, like Jimmy, right?
1: The big three.
0: The big three. Um, I'm also going to include, like, other random things. Like, I guarantee that if this- A really in fast the
1: 21st, chariot.
0: Yeah. <laughs> if he lived in the 21st century, he'd buy, like, a PlayStation 5 and probably a couple of them. Yeah.
1: He had, like, the finest Batgammon board ever to exist. <laughs> So,
0: he spends all of his money, and he ends up working with a pig farmer, and he is so hungry at this point that he looks at what the pigs are eating and says, I could go for that, and that's when he realizes that he needs to change his ways. This is when we would say he repents, and he says, well, I'll go back to my father, and I'll ask my father to let me work the grounds, to let me work in the household. I don't need to be restored to being a son, but... His, his employees live great lives, and I would be satisfied being just one of those. And he goes back, and before he gets back to the house, the father sees him and runs out and meets him, and hugs him and kisses him and gives him a robe and a ring and shoes. And he says, we're so excited because this son of mine that was once dead is now alive And I'd I'd say that that right there is the example of graciousness. Hebrew terms don't always have a really good like word-for-word definition. I think that's the really good image definition. The fact that the father not only was willing to hear the son out, but that he came out to meet him with excitement, with glee, that he was willing to not only restore him to being a servant, but to restore him into being a son again. And that's, that's this really good image. I think that's the best image to define graciousness.
1: One thing, I just love pointing out like how to read your Bible details when I'm teaching or when someone else is, if I have an opportunity to butt in, like here. The Bible loves teaching in pictures because the Bible has to teach you a lot of things that it's really hard to define. So the Bible teaches in pictures. Pay attention to pictures and stories; they are trying to teach you something. Um, the other thing, well, are you are you done defining your terms yet, or do you have another one?
0: I'm done with that one. I have three more.
1: Okay. When you're done, come back to me because I have a detail about love being vulnerability I'd like to touch on. Okay. But go ahead and finish your last three.
0: So the next one is going to be Yahweh's slow to angerness or slowness to anger, however you want to say it. This this term, you know, it's not hard to translate. You know, it's not difficult to see, but it's exemplified in an image, specifically in the image of Jonah. So when you look at the book of Jonah, quick rundown again, Jonah is called to bring a message to Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to. He goes the other way. God redirects him. He goes to the city, he gives this terrible five-word sermon that works extremely well, and the whole city repents, and Jonah ends up getting super mad about it at the end, because he didn't want the Ninevites to be saved, he wanted to watch them get destroyed. The ultimate example of Yahweh's slowness to anger would be in this story, not by the Ninevites, which is what the story wants you to see. It wants you to see the repentance of the Ninevites, that they were given an opportunity but it also wants you to see how Jonah acts. Jonah's refusal to bring this message to the city is the ultimate example of Yahweh's slowness to anger. He, is, he does not need Jonah to do this. He could bring the message through anybody else. But he chooses Jonah. And Jonah says, I don't choose you. I choose to go the other way. And when he gets redirected, his message is... The city should repent or it will be destroyed in 40 days. Not a hard message. Uh, Jonah cuts it in half and he says the city is going to be destroyed in 40 days. He no longer gives them the opportunity to repent, which is really interesting um, for another time. We often do the same things. We really like to preach the message of grace to the people we like, and we really like to preach the message of judgment to the people we don't like. Jonah is doing this, and Yahweh says the city is still going to repent. The city repents. They wear their sackcloth and ashes, and if I'm recalling correctly, because I don't have the story directly in front of me, uh, it says that even the cows repented, which is like an exaggeration. Every single person was doing this, right? And then at the end of the story, you see Jonah get upset that the people were saved, and they end up... Uh, Yahweh asks him a question and says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry now? And Jonah says, well, yes, it is. I'm so angry. You should just kill me. Which, by the way, never say that to God. Because he can. Like, that's that's not yeah, a he good... he might
1: take you up on that.
0: Yeah, unless you're very serious. Don't say that. So... Jonah ends up getting a scorching wind, and the sun is beating down on him, and God gives him a plant and teaches him an object, object lesson through the plants. God gives him the plant. God takes the plant away. And then Jonah gets more upset that the plant got taken. And Yahweh says, yeah, is it right for you to be angry? was providing him with
1: shade, and then God took it. And he's like, the heck, God? And he's super mad about it. And then...
0: Yahweh says, is it right for you to be angry about this plant that you did no work for? And he says, well, yeah, of course it is. And then Yahweh answers and says, Wouldn't it be more reasonable for me to be upset with this city full of people and full of animals and all of these good things than it is for you to be upset about a plant you did no work for? And that's where the book ends. Because the point is that we should reflect on that question. Should we see that, or should we understand god's grace to the people that we
1: can't stand over us and so same place that's, by the way the prodigal son ends the story of the prodigal son his brother is sitting outside of this giant party that's getting thrown for his brother and he's so mad he won't go in and the story just ends like the brother or the father comes out and talks to him and is like please come in and then the story ends and you don't know if he does or not Because you're meant to put yourself in the place of the brother or in the place of jonah and say what would i do or specifically the prodigal son you're supposed to see the pharisees sitting in the seat of the of the brother and God saying are you going to come in are you going to celebrate the sinners repenting or are you going to be a jerk
0: so uh the next term that i want to define this one is going to be super short so the next word is hesed which is the Hebrew word for love. Yahweh describes himself as abounding in love. The best definition would be a sacrificial love. This, this word characterizes Yahweh himself. And so essentially any way that Yahweh would act would be love. It doesn't have a good English equivalent. It's translated a bunch of different ways. Loving kindness, love, mercifulness. Um, yeah.
1: So can you clarify something for me I'm curious about? Maybe I've heard it said defined as, of course, love, but as like God's covenant, keeping faithfulness, like God expresses his love by keeping his covenants. Is that a good definition?
0: Yeah. So it is a covenant word, which a covenant is a bond made uh, between unequals usually. Um, and it's not like a contract. It's not something that if one side breaks, the other side is expected to break. Um, it actually is, as said, is actually used to describe God's faithfulness to his covenant. Uh, even when we break that covenant, because we had laws that we were supposed to follow in the old covenant. Uh, and Yahweh continues to show favor to the Israelites after they continue to break those laws. And that's that's the description of Hesed that we would see. It's love that requires sacrifice and really has no... No prerequisites. But it's usually found in covenant. And so there is an expectation, but there's no requisite. There's no requirements, if that makes sense.
1: So it's these covenants that Martin is talking about. Um, if you want to look into them, the secular version of them is called a suzerain treaty. Just try your best to spell it and Google will correct you. And in these treaties, you have a greater and a lesser partner. And the lesser partner has some rights, but they're pretty limited. And the greater partner has the the lion's share of the rights and privileges. And the way these are set up in the Bible, God has the lion's share of the rights and privileges. He is in the position of the suzerain, of the governor, the the controller of the area. And if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is, his said is God is in the suzerain position. He has all the rights. And even when we mess up and he has the right to drop the hammer, he chooses not to, and he continues to hold up his end of the bargain, even though there's no reason for him to. He doesn't have to. No one's making him. He has all the rights. We've already messed up, so he wouldn't be breaking his word to punish us. And yet he chooses not to. That is my
0: understanding of of it. So I want to jump to our last word, because I thought this was really interesting. Um, so Yahweh finishes his description of himself in love by describing himself as abounding in faithfulness and this is this is something that I think goes over our heads quite often because uh, we don't fully understand what it was like to live in the, the ancient Mesopotamian world in the ancient Near East that the Israelites lived in right so I like this translation better than faithfulness uh, it could also be translated as reliability uh, and this is this is why this is so important. This means, especially to the group of the Israelites, especially to the people who lived at this time, where they understood the unsteadiness of the world, the unpredictability of the world, to be because of the unsteadiness of the deities that were in control of them. So, in a world where we understand tornadoes come from the wind god being upset, or The crops not yielding well being because our fertility god doesn't like it or our harvest god doesn't like us. In a world where crazy things can happen, which we experience a lot of these crazy things as well, and we have completely different reasonings as Westerners in the 21st century. But for most of these people, they understood the cause of these as the god in control of being of those things being upset with them or not having enough worship or sacrifice to them that draws a very clear picture of who yahweh is at this point then if we understand that the other gods were depicted as unreliable or easy to change their opinions easy to be moved around easy to you know just not find you likable right in a world where that is the picture of deity, Yahweh describes himself as reliable, constant, faithful, always showing up, always having, or always showing favor to you, always always being in your corner, basically. And that's really interesting, because if we just read God is abounding in faithfulness, we're going to say, okay, cool, God, you're cool. But when we see this from the light of what these people believed about a deity, when we see this in light of what these people thought happened around them, this means a whole lot. This is so much more significant than we would often consider it. And that's part of why I thought this was so interesting. So this last last description of Yahweh, abounding in faithfulness, is all about how he stays with us, about how he... Is continually with us and so when we talk about compassion we would see somebody who's grieving or somebody whose heart is broken because of what's happened when we see God as gracious we should understand that we at one point required that specific form of grace the grace that does not is not deserved uh, and has been given to us at this point Jesus has given us that grace as Christians But this grace is specifically just in his willingness to even listen to us because we do not deserve that. Um, His slowness to anger, his constant reminder that he is not going to just abandon us because we messed up one too many times, right? His sacrificial love in his covenant, right? His promise to continue to fulfill his half of the deal and his reliability. This is how God describes love through each of through a combination of these terms. And I think that's amazing to see. This is this is quite possibly the second coolest part of this passage. So, Jason, you had something that you wanted to add when we got done defining terms.
1: Yeah, and I was hoping that this would happen because you brought up another term that parallels really well. So, you mentioned when you were talking about faithfulness as reliability. That God is consistent he's reliable he's there so a lot of us we grew up with figures in our lives that look a lot like the ancient gods look to their people let, let, let me illustrate that from the ancient world first there's a story a babylonian story called the epic of Atrahasis that you can look up find english translations of and read if you're a huge nerd like we are there's another epic you might be more familiar with called the epic of gilgamesh it's a little bit earlier they both contain a flood story like just like in genesis there's a flood that floods the whole world or a big chunk of it and kills a bunch of people the epic of gilgamesh doesn't tell us why it happened specifically the epic of atrahasis tells us why it happened specifically it says the reason why Inlil, the god who makes the flood decides to try to kill everyone he doesn't succeed but he tries is because people breed too quickly, and all of these people building these huge cities are too loud, and they're they're interrupting his rest, and he wants them to shut up, so he decides to murder all of them. Like that is how ancient people pictured their gods—that they're such a solid so. Plan. Yeah, I mean, of course, as one does. You know, if you've ever lived in like a multi-story apartment building and you have those upstairs neighbors that wear cinder blocks for shoes, like. You know, you know, the feeling of like, they are so loud, I might kill someone. But Enlil decides to go forward with it and just genocide the entire human species. That's how people thought of their gods. And some of us grew up with people, obviously, hopefully not that bad, but like people who only liked you when you were worth it only liked you when you did the things they wanted you to do. Some of us grew up with parents who withheld affection when you messed up, when you didn't make the grades, when you didn't perform well enough in sports, uh, when you didn't toe the line just right, or you dated someone at some point who would, whenever you did something they didn't like, then they would go and hit on someone else or they'd go and cheat on you and then tell you about it just to get back at you or you grew up with friends that they were your biggest supporter until you did something they didn't like, and then they'd start some horrible rumor about you and try to, you know, ruin your social life or whatever. You, you can fill in with terrible thought. choices in friends and significant
0: others. I've never had anyone like that. I'm going to be honest. I also
1: then didn't have you are friends. Then you are immensely lucky. And, and some mean, of you, I you know. are lucky. You're like, I don't know what you're getting on about. But most people, I think, have experienced something like that someone who is manipulative they just they use you for their pleasure and then when you don't toe the line then there's consequences really really harsh consequences that's how ancient people thought of their gods you can't trust someone like that and that's why hopefully if you've had people like that in your life you end up cutting them out of your life because you can't trust them but ancient people were scared if they tried to do that to their gods their gods would would punish them. So your only recourse, because you can't get away from a deity, your only recourse is try to keep them happy and then they won't hurt you. It's an abusive relationship. A lot of ancient peoples had, frankly, abusive relationships with their gods. And the contrast to that is God's love, his willingness to be vulnerable for our benefit. And there's no story that illustrates that better than Jesus incarnation. God is, the fancy word is impassable. He's
0: unchanging. I'm going to talk about Jesus' incarnation in a second, so don't hit it too hard.
1: Okay. So just a little bit of an illustration. I'll steal a little bit of your thunder, but not all of it. God is unchanging, the fancy word impassable. And he puts himself in a position where he can experience change, where he can be physically hurt, where he can be Rejected, where he can be crucified and even die. And he does that for you. He makes himself vulnerable because of how deeply he loves his creation. Like, if that doesn't show you the difference between how people used to think of their gods and what our god is like, nothing will.
0: Like Jason kind of pointed out, the ultimate example of God's love is... His willingness to provide the ultimate sacrifice to justify his people, and there's not a passage that really exemplifies it better than John three sixteen. And if you have it memorized like I do, you just say it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it out loud. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This passage exemplifies what Yahweh's love means. It means because he loved the world, I'm going to break it down into pieces. Because God loved the world, he sent his son, which is also himself, by the way, so that he could experience physical pain, so that he could be tempted in the ways that we were, so that he could do all of these things. He could perform miracles to show people his deity. He could teach people the correct understanding of the law. He could redefine the way that the people who, the people of God lived. He did all of this because he loved us so much. And ultimately, he dies what Paul describes as an embarrassing death. Not just an excruciating death, but an embarrassing death. Death that ultimately. For most people who had not listened to Jesus, who did not see his miracles, who just knew about the guy and said he's out there, told them this guy was a liar because he is being crucified in the same way that thieves and murderers are. He's done something wrong, clearly. But he loves the world so much that he would sacrifice his son in such a way that they could spend eternity with them so that they could spend eternity with them. And, um, Millard Erickson, um, the guy who I mentioned in last week's episode, um, not Joseph Fletcher, but the guy I talked about after that, um, he wrote one of the textbooks that I have, right? And he's talking about God's love. And he says something along the lines of, um, we might think that the ultimate love Or we might say that because God loves us, he should just forgive us. But in reality, the better example of that love is his willingness to give up for us. Could he just wave his hand and say all is forgiven? Theoretically, yeah. But the ultimate love is in that he sacrificed for us. And that it actually cost him. Cost him a lot, actually. And I think that's really just a beautiful picture of that. So because God is loving, he provides the ultimate sacrifice to justify his people. But there's another thing that God does because he loves his people. Uh, and if you have your Bibles, you can pop open Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. 11. Uh, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to forsake you. That's the Martin paraphrase translation. This is my mother's favorite Bible passage. So I have a pretty good paraphrase of it. Uh, she posted it in our house all over when we look at this passage we usually you know interpret it as god has something for me i have great things that will happen right it's very self-focused and it's not the intention of jeremiah jeremiah's intention is to display god's love to protect his people jeremiah writes to the israelites in exile when they are beginning to question whether or not they're going to get out when they are beginning to question whether or not they are there because they did something wrong or because God doesn't exist. And he writes to them saying, God knows the plans that he has for you, and it is not to hurt you. It is not to uh, make you question him. It is not to watch you suffer. It is specifically to prosper you. It's going to be good for you. And eventually, after the Israelites return from exile, comes their Messiah, the the ultimate king, who is the continuation of Israel, right? The true Israel, he's called somewhere, I can't think of off the top of my head. Um, But he is the completion of that Old Testament, or that Old Covenant. He is the, the ultimate perfection of it those people, Jeremiah also writes uh, a couple chapters later about the law being written on their hearts instead of on stone. Uh, And no one exemplified that better than Jesus. The law was written on his heart. He understood the message of the law. He lived the law in its message. And so uh, when we see God, God's love, the biggest example is in how he protects is people, not as individuals, but as a whole. The nation of Israel was not wiped out, which is insanely gracious. The people deserved it. But the people were not destroyed. the The Israelites were not left for dead. They were not taken out. They were eventually redeemed, and they got back to their homeland. They got back to the nation of Israel. They got back... And they had the fulfillment of their promise, the fulfillment, which is Jesus, the ultimate promise to Abraham, right? When he says, uh, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and the entire world. That ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus. And so God continues to move his plan, to continue to move forward in his plan and protect his people. Because he loves them. And I think that's a really. Important thing that we can see. This passage isn't concerning. Individuals. It's concerning the church. It's concerning the people. Who worship him. As a whole.
1: I don't think I could provide a. Better summary. Than that. Um, So I'm not going to try. Martin do you have anything else to add before we call it here.
0: No, we have one more episode on this. Um, So if you appreciate this, if you enjoy it, let us know because we can do more of this. But that's my, my closing thoughts.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like he pretty much did the, the closing for me. Please like, follow and share, except for you don't like here. Give us a good rating share it with your family. Please keep coming back. If this is helpful to you, to your faith, if it gives you questions to ponder, if it helps you to meditate on the passages we're speaking about, if it encourages you in your faith, if you have any topics for us, email us at real theology at gmail.com. Or if you have our numbers, just call us or text us and we'll add them to the list. Uh, thank you guys for being here with us today and we'll see you back here next week.